book so much, the book of Hebrews. And of course, we know and we have learned and we have repeated week and week again that we are learning that Jesus is you are such good students. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. And we learned last week that he's better than the Levitical system. If you were with us last week, you remember that we learned that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because of the order of Melchizedek. So we looked at this mystery man last week and we discovered that he was none other than a type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and and if you've been with us very long here at Calvary San Juan, you've learned that we study through the whole Bible. And the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, points to who? Jesus. You are such good students. John would be so proud. <laughs> he, it, the whole Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, it all points to Jesus Christ. And... Um, we praise God for that. So we looked last week that this man, Melchizedek, points to Jesus. But we have to understand that the writer is writing to a specific group of people, these Hebrew believers who were counting the cost of going forward with the Lord. And they've sort of ditched the Levitical priesthood. And uh, we're going to talk more about that uh, today. But there was a cost involved, and we know for us too, there is a cost involved. There's always a cost involved to following after Jesus Christ. And I would say um, the harder you follow, the greater the cost of following hard after Jesus. So the writer continues his case this week by presenting the evidence that Jesus is better than the old system because he provides a better covenant. So will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, if you're not there already, and let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you and praise you that you are here in our midst, God. We love you, and we ask for your spirit to uh, empower us, to give us insight into your scriptures, and to minister to our hearts something sweet and special today. And we trust that you will, in Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer presents a logical ar argument full of clear and undeniable evidence that Jesus was greater than the high priest of Aaron because it came from a different order. That was last week. Aaron was a descendant, we learned last week, if you weren't with us, of Levi and formed the order of the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron and his successors did their very best at the time to minister on behalf of the people, you remember, yet each of them was limited in what they were able to accomplish. No matter how many sacrifices they offered, the best they could do was to cover the people's sins, but they could not remove their sins. Therefore, the work of atonement was never complete. But Jesus came, and he offered a different order altogether, you recall. Jesus was not part of the Aaronic priesthood, he was part of the tribe of what? Judah. Judah. You are such good, good students. He was the 
um, from the tribe of Judah. And he was called to be our high priest based upon the Old Testament order of Melchizedek, which was prophesied and foreshadowed, we learned last week, in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. So as chapter 7 comes to a close, we saw that Jesus' ministry is greater because his ministry comes with a guarantee. His ministry lasts for eternity, you recall. His ministry comes with supernatural ability. And Jesus' ministry is completed perfectly. All of those things we learned last week. Now, we must keep in mind that the context of this letter and what the readers were going through at the time, as I said, that the Hebrew believers were being persecuted because um, they were following after the new covenant. They were basically looked down upon. They were seen as traitors for their own family's religion. They were considered outcasts and no longer welcomed in their community. They would have to answer questions like, Where's your high priest, and why can't we see him, and why isn't he um, in the temple like ours is, sacrificing, and, and how do you know your sins are atoned for? I mean, when we really stop and think about the persecution that they were going through, we understand the, um, the temptation for them to go back to that which they could, what, see, that which was tangible, and, and they're trusting in something they cannot see just like we are. We cannot see Jesus, can we? But we trust because we know, because it's proven and it's sure that he is who he says to be. But yet, it still takes what? Faith. It takes faith. We have to faith. We have to have faith. We have to have trust to be able to um, to trust in what the word of God, that it is infallible. It is the word of God, the real word of God. And that takes faith. Our whole Christianity is based upon faith, something that we cannot see, something that isn't completely tangible, but it is through faith that we trust. Amen? And that's what we're supposed to do. So we can understand in one sense what these people are going through. Knowing that these Hebrews uh, were struggling and needed answers, the writer brings new evidence this week to the table by reiterating the fact that Jesus' ministry is better than the priests of the Old Testament due to, this week, three main points. If you're taking notes, he will prove that Jesus is a better minister. Secondly, he will prove that Jesus ministers from a better place. So he's a better minister, he ministers from a better place, and thirdly, Jesus will prove that he provides better promises. Better ministry, better place, better promises. Beginning with Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2, the author explains our first point by saying, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. The writer is saying, in essence, this is how you know how you're to answer your critics. Tell them first that Jesus is a better minister because he meets four requirements. And these are the requirements. Number one. He is morally perfect. Jesus was a man, yet he was God. He was with us, yet he knew no sin. Every other high priest that was in the past, 
and that we talked about last week, was still a man, yet he was not perfect. He was imperfect. So he was, Jesus was morally perfect. Secondly, Jesus finished the work. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're told, because his work is complete. There were no chairs, you recall in the Old Testament, tabernacle, as we're learning on Wednesday nights, because the work of the priest was never completed. It was never finished. Each time they made a sacrifice, it was a reminder that none of the sacrifice that they had previously made were able to atone for the sins completely, once and for all. They would have to what? Have another sacrifice and then another one. Their job was continuous. It only covered sin until the day that Jesus came and took away the sins of the world. So they were continually offering sacrifices. Now remember, when this was being written, the temple was still erected. It was still up. The sacrifices were still being made. They could still see it. It hadn't been destroyed yet. So Jesus was morally perfect. He finished the work. Three, he sat down. Not only is Jesus seated, notice where he is seated, we're told. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand was a place of honor and place of power. The fact that Jesus is seated in the place of authority was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that was given in Psalm 110, verse 1. You recall, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And in Matthew 26 verse 64, when Jesus was being questioned by the religious leaders and the high priest then um, placed him under an oath, asking him the question, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, to which Jesus responded in verse 64, saying, it is as you say, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And in Acts 2, verses 32 through 33, Peter stood at the crowds and he had gathered that day of Pentecost and he began to preach and he said, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. And again, if that's not enough evidence, in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Paul was saying, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is something that the high priest was unable to fulfill. He never sat down, nor did he sit on the throne. So not only was Jesus morally perfect, he finished the work. He sat down in the place of honor, but fourth and finally, he is exalted. Jesus is in the heavens. Hebrews 4.4 tells us that he passed through the heavens and now is exalted on high. 
Ephesians 1, 19 through, oh, excuse me, 1, yeah, 19 through 23 says, And which is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So based upon these four points, we can see that our Lord Jesus ministers on the basis of a better covenant because he is perfect, completed, seated, and exalted. Not only is Jesus a better minister, but he ministers, our second point today, from a better place. Hebrews uh, 8, 2 through 5 says, follow along. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed what he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. The earthly high priests ministered on behalf of the people in the tabernacle or the earthly temple that was built by man. If you've been with us, as I said, on Wednesday nights, you've been able to see the blueprints of the tabernacle as we're going through. We have seen that each article, each piece of furniture in the tabernacle points to who? Yes, points to Jesus. And we will continue to see the tabernacle. We're actually next week going to go and look at the tabernacle here in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 next week. But... What we do see is that everything, the blueprints for the tabernacle, were yet another symbolism, another type. As we learned last week, that the order of Melchizedek, this mystery man, was a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, where the tabernacle is a type of what? The exact model, the replica of what is going to be in heaven. The same thing. Um, Sort of um, a little sneak peek of what it's going to look like in heaven. So we're given that in the Old Testament. Again, pointing to Jesus. Every piece and article of the furniture and everything represents it all goes back to It's fascinating how it all really points back to Jesus if you've been with us. So the earthly temple was a representation, as I said, or a model of that temple in heaven. Likewise, the Ark of the Covenant was a representation or um, a model of the throne of God. But our high priest, Jesus, doesn't minister in the earthly temple or the tabernacle, which were only representations of that temple in heaven. Jesus is in the actual temple, the actual sanctuary, the true tabernacle in heaven. So each high priest was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, Jesus must also offer gifts and sacrifices as a high priest. 
the gift that Jesus offered was himself, the greatest gift of all. Jesus offered himself as that one and final sacrifice. Um, And aren't you glad that we don't have to sacrifice on a weekly basis uh, to atone for our sins? But I want you to notice the phrase to offer. It's in the Greek tense, and it implies to offer once and for all. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross at Calvary was a once and for all sacrifice. No sacrifices need to be made to atone for our sins. He met all the requirements to be our scapegoat, to take our sins upon himself and to atone for all of our mistakes, all of our wrongdoings, wrong actions, and wrong attitudes were um, atoned for at his death on the cross. So as our high priest, Jesus is a better minister. We know that he ministers from a better place. And third and finally, his ministry is founded upon better promises. Verse 6 says, But now obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Verse 6 is really a pivotal verse in this letter, for it closes the first major argument. The book was written to prove that Jesus' blood is superior to take the place of the sacrificial system. The writer has proven this to be true based upon the pure logic and, and using Old Testament scriptures. So in light of this, we can better understand the words of verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant. In Job 9, Job was struggling, you recall, over the fact that he had no mediator to consider his case. He had no go-between to get to God. But now, Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. He is our go-between. He is our mediator. In fact, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now that the author has proven that Jesus is a new and a better high priest, he begins to write concerning this new and better covenant. He alluded to this new covenant in Hebrews um, chapter 7, verse 22, saying, By so much more, Jesus has become our surety of a better covenant. He said last week, in this section, the writer now makes a number of contrasts between the old and new covenant. Thirteen out of 17 times here, we see this word covenant. It's used in its Greek form. It's clearly, we know, an important word in this text this week. Now, if there is a new covenant, that means that there had to be an old covenant, right? So what was the old covenant? The old covenant was the Mosaic covenant, and it is a conditional agreement made between God and the nation of Israel, you recall in Exodus 19, um, on Mount Sinai. It was a covenant that was based upon Israel's obedience to the laws that God gave them. This covenant would serve to set the nation of Israel apart from any other nation because they were God's chosen people. 
There were also blessings and curses that were associated with this conditional covenant, and we can find them in detail in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, if you're interested. The sacrificial system of the old covenant didn't really take away sins. It simply, as we were told, foreshadowed or pointed to the bearing of our sin by Jesus on the cross, who was the perfect high priest and was perfect sacrifice, we know. Therefore, the old covenant itself, with all of its detailed laws, could not save people. We know that. It's not that there was any problem necessarily with the law itself. We can't be too hard on that because God gave the law and established the law for the people for a purpose. There was a purpose to the law. So we don't want to just throw it out the window and say the law was bad. The law wasn't bad. The law actually was good. It was good that they had the law. Just as much as we could say our laws aren't good. It's good that we have laws, isn't it? I mean, we should have laws. And it's good that we have laws. We should. They keep people in order. They hold people accountable. Well, that's what God was trying to do here in the Old Testament um, until the people began disobeying the law. They had no power over it. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't maintain the law. In fact, the law was given, we know, for what reason? To point us to who? The law was given, in essence, to point them to Jesus. The Lord knew that they couldn't withhold or uphold all the law. It's impossible. I mean, we break the Ten Commandments on a daily basis, I'm sure. Uh, And they did as well. So the law was given to hold the people accountable to give them some sort of boundary and parameters, but yet, in essence, to know that there's no way that they could uphold the law, which all points to Jesus Christ and the need for a Savior. So there had to be a new agreement. So we know that there was an old law, and there was a new law, an old covenant, and a new covenant. So there had to be a new covenant. And this one was not based upon performance. This one was based upon not keeping the law perfectly because it's impossible. This law, this new covenant, was based entirely upon grace. God sent his son to bring this new covenant to us, which was not based upon performance of ourselves, what was entirely based upon the performance of one person only. And that person is Jesus Christ. In verses 7 through 13, the writer looks back to the Old Testament where the prophet Jeremiah had foretold of the new covenant that would be introduced and the benefits of it. So he lists four promises that he received, or excuse me, that we received, Because of the new covenant. And the first is found in verses 7 through 9. We receive, the first promise that we receive is the promise, as we said, of God's grace. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault in them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. The emphasis on the new covenant is on God's I will. The nation of Israel at Sinai said, we will do this and that. We will obey the law. And guess what? They didn't obey it. It's one thing to say we'll do something, but it's quite another to follow through and actually do it. You know, we can read the word we can hear messages, we can listen to pastors, but it's a choice whether we're going to obey what we hear, what we read, what we listen to, or not, right? The new covenant is not dependent upon what we say or do. It is, however, dependent upon the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness to us. We know that the scripture tells us that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. It is not, ladies, dependent upon us. We will let God down on a daily basis. And guess what? He knows that. And that's why Jesus had to come to provide the new covenant of grace, which is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness, and we don't deserve heaven, do we? But we have it available to us for the asking. It's a free gift. Did you know that Jesus loves you just as much when you're reading your Bible every single day is when you forget. <gasps> Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus loves you just as much when you pray every day fervently as when you don't? Really? Really? Why is that? Because our salvation is secured based upon the death of Jesus Christ and not based upon our performance. Is that freeing? It is so freeing to know that there is nothing that I could do to make God love me more than he did when I was at war with him, when I was apart from him, when I was not walking with him. He loves us just the same then as he does now when we pray every day and read our Bible every day. Did you know that today? I feel that that's very freeing. That nothing I do can make God love me more than he does or he did when I was apart from him. Maybe that's for somebody today that's feeling a little um, unworthy. We all are unworthy. But there is nothing that we can do. No amount of Bible reading, no amount of praying, no amount of doing good deeds that could make the Lord love you any more than he loved you when you were away from him. He loves us just the same amount when we're the very closest to him, when we were the very furthest from him. Our relationship, ladies, with our Savior is not dependent upon what we do. That's the old covenant. But it's entirely based upon 
the new covenant, his grace, giving us what we do not deserve. We read our Bibles, ladies, because we want to get to know Jesus more, right? Not because we have to. Maybe in the beginning, it's because we have to. Because we, we learn how to make it a habit. But we read our Bibles because we want to. We want to know our Savior. We want to know our bridegroom. We want to know the one who died for us. Not because we have to, because we want to. We pray because we want to be intimate with the Lord. We want to hear from him. Not because we have to, but because we desire to. We want to know him. We want to hear from him on a daily basis. We want to be still before him. What does he say to me? How is he ministering to me? We worship the Lord, ladies, because we adore him. It's a response because of our great love for him. Amen? Doesn't that, um, that's great cause for a response today to worship the Lord. We should be so grateful, so excited. It would be, um, it's not the equivalent, but I guess the only equivalent that we could think of is being in love with somebody and yet not taking the time to get to know them. When you're in love with somebody, you want to spend every minute with them. You want to hear them. You want to write down everything they say. The same is true with the word of God, with the Lord, with prayer. We, we want to be so intimate with him because we love him. The old covenant was based upon rules and regulations and rituals, but that's been done away with, and we are free to serve the Lord, love the Lord, and seek the Lord as much or, ladies, as little as you want to. It's really up to us, isn't it? When we first get saved, you know, we're kind of figuring this all out. I'm sorry, I have a cold. (laughs) Uh, John, he gave it to me. No, I'm just kidding. I think I gave it to him. (laughs) We were both in bed all day yesterday. So uh, it's good. The Lord is faithful. But um, the old covenant was based upon rules and regulations and rituals. But that's done away with. And we're free, as I said, to serve the Lord as much or as little as we want to. When we first get saved, you know, we're trying to sort of figure this whole thing out and how it works. We might tend to become a little rigid and uh, legalistic as we learn. But at some point, I believe, at least with me, a light bulb went off. And I realized that I love Jesus, and that's why I want to know him more deeply. I love him, and that's why I want to spend time getting to know him. I want to hang out with him, you know, alone, to spend time with him alone, and to worship him. Our love for the Lord is a response to the work that he's doing in and through our lives. Um, I always try to think of something that I think you gals would be able to relate to. So I thought, well, it's kind of like losing weight. You know, you lose weight and uh, a little bit and you get encouraged, right? Like, wow, I'm making some progress. And uh, so you keep going. As you see results, you are further encouraged to continue in your 
pursuit of whatever that is. You feel good, you look good, you're healthy, you're strong. The same is with our relationship with the Lord. As we begin to learn more about him and make progress in our walk with the Lord, we're encouraged. And then we want to go deeper and, and know more about him and experience more with the Lord and be used more for him. This leads to our second promise found in verse 10. The promise of internal change. Verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The old covenant provided a standard for the people, but it couldn't provide the power that they needed to obey that covenant. Sinful people needed a new heart and a new disposition within, and this is what the new covenant provided through Jesus Christ. When a sinner repents and trusts the Lord as Savior, the Holy Spirit goes from being with you than to being what? In you. And then when we are baptized with the Spirit, it comes upon us. So every person has the Spirit with them. But when you get saved, it goes from outside to inside, basically. It goes from with us to in us. When we live with the Holy Spirit in us, we are then convicted. You know, we have red flags that go off. We start um, not doing things. We, we choose to obey. And we're given the power to obey when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. Our disposition even begins to change as we choose obedience over disobedience. It's a choice that we make not because we have to, but because what? We want to. We want to. The more of the word that goes in to our minds, the more of it that filters down 18 inches to where? Our heart. 18 inches separates our mind from our heart only. <laughs> the more of the word in, the more that goes down, the more of the word out, right? In, down, and out. That's how it works. We're told in Romans 12, 2, that it's the word of God that transforms us into new creations. As we renew our minds, we are changed, we know, into the very image of Jesus Christ. The more word in, the more word out. It's pretty simple, right? Where the old covenant was external, written on the tablets of stone, we're told that this new covenant is internal, written where? On the tablets of our heart and our mind, which causes an internal transformation, making the believer more and more like who? Jesus. In addition to the grace of God, in the internal change of God, we are also given, number three, the promise of forgiveness. Amen for this one. 
Verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, excuse me, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. There was no forgiveness under the law because the law wasn't able to take forgiveness from them. It wasn't given for that purpose. Romans 3.20 tells us, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the what? Knowledge of sin. The law was given to show us our sin, not to atone for the sin. The law couldn't, ladies, promise forgiveness to Israel, let alone to all mankind. Verse 11 is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 34, and refers to that day when Israel will be reunited with Judah and will rejoice in the promised kingdom. There will be no need to share the gospel with anyone any longer because everybody will know the Lord personally. Really? Yes. Wow. What a day that will be. But until then, we are told, commanded, that we are to be busy about our Father's business. And his business is to share Jesus with everybody that we can possibly share with. In verse 12, we see that our sins are forgiven. They are never to be brought up again. You know, God does not hold grudges. Praise God, right? (laughs) And he deals with us on the basis of grace, and mercy, getting what we don't deserve, grace, and not getting what we do deserve, mercy, grace and mercy. We often think that we are to forgive and forget, as the saying goes, right? We're to forgive and forget, but that's impossible. We are not capable of doing that, of forgetting all of the wrongs ever done to us. Forgiveness, says Warren Wearsby, means not to hold it against the person who wronged you. We may remember what others have done, but we treat them as though they never did. That is true forgiveness. I'm going to read that again. It's very profound. Forgiveness means not to hold it against the person who wronged you, We may remember what others have done, but we treat them as though they never did it. That is true forgiveness. Amen? You ask, how is this even possible? It's possible only because of the cross. There on the cross, God treated his son, Jesus, As though he did it. As though he did our sins. Have you ever really stopped to think about that? On the cross, God treated his son as it was you. 
and me. All of our sins. Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we are to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven us. Has Jesus forgiven you? Yes. Then we have no right not to forgive others. That doesn't mean that you forget because we do not forget. But it means that you treat them as though they never hurt you. And that is only possible, ladies, we know, through the cross. We are required to forgive others. Because we know that the Bible says if we've been forgiven, we must forgive others. To those who are forgiven much, we're told, love much. The more we're forgiven the more we're called to forgive. Our final promise, I believe, is the best of all, and that is we are promised an eternal blessing. Verse 13 tells us, in that he says a new covenant he has made, the first obsolete, now what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant was still Governing the nation of Israel at the time that this letter was written, as I told you in the beginning, the temple was still standing. They could see it. And the priests were still offering sacrifices. What they didn't realize was that the religion that they were so committed to would soon vanish away. For just a short time after that, in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans, including the temple. And guess what? It has not been rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt. When? The book of Revelation tells us there will be a third temple that will be rebuilt and they're waiting and they're ready. If you're going to Israel with us, you will be floored. You will not even believe what you will see. Is everything's ready. They've got it. I mean, they can have it ready, sacrifices ready within two hours. They are, they, everything is done and set for the new temple to be erected. They say it'll take three months, only three months, because the plans are set. It's, it's fascinating. Every time we go over there, we see more and more. And you can see the actual ephod that the high priest is going to wear. And so, you know, it used to be, not anymore, it used to be you could ask questions. There was actually somebody that took you around but now they just have you go to room and then it's an audio. But when we were able to ask questions, we would say, so how, what if the high priest is bigger or smaller? They're like, yes, no problem. We'll just take it in. So uh, you can see everything. The, the table of showbread right before your eyes. It's behind glass, but you can see it. You're not allowed to take pictures. I did take them before I knew that was the case. But, so I do have them. But, uh, but better that you go over there and you can see it with your own eyes. Fascinating. They're ready. They're ready. And they're so excited. And we're like, oh, my goodness. You have no idea who you're going to be worshiping for three and a half years. But nevertheless, they will see that Jesus Christ is Messiah at three and a half years when the Antichrist stands up and wants to be worshiped as God, right? 
It's real, ladies. If you want to see how real and tangible it is, come to Israel with us and you will be blown away how real and how they're so excited about this. They've got little kids, excite everybody. The third temple, they are, they're just waiting. And um, it's real. If you want to have the urgency of the return of Jesus Christ, go to Israel. You will get it. You'll be like, oh my goodness, Jesus is coming soon. And it ignites this fire within you. Wonderful. I'm a huge advocate, can you tell, for going to Israel. (laughs) One and two and three and keep going and keep going and keep going. It's amazing. You will be recharged like never before. So their eyes will be opened. They will see Jesus. Praise God. Finally, they will see him as Messiah. And they will come to know him. I can't wait. So when we go over there, we can't be too hard on them, you know. We have to just know that they're, they're blinded. The Lord has opened the eyes of some, but many are blinded. One day, their eyes will be open. What an exciting time that will be. We're blessed, though, that we have the word of God, that our eyes have been opened, that we understand this new covenant versus that we're not under the rules and the regulations, the rituals of the old covenant. We are blessed today indeed, and we have the promise of grace and mercy and internal change and the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And our response should be praise and adoration and forgiveness of others and joy that is unending. We have so much, don't we, ladies, to be thankful for today? We really do. What a blessing. I'm so grateful that we are saved by grace through faith and that we don't have to live up to any expectations or withhold any certain criteria We read our Bible because we want to. We want to know more about Jesus. We pray because we want to be intimate with him, not because we have to do something, because we want to do it. Does that free you today? It is so freeing. I heard John Corson this last week um, say that... um, He struggled with this in the beginning, making his devotional life very legalistic and doing it because he had to, but not because he wanted to. And he was freed one day when somebody said, you don't have to do it. And he said, right when somebody told me I didn't have to do it, I wanted to. And isn't that the truth, you know? Don't touch that wet paint. What wet paint? You know, it's like when we finally are told we don't have to do something, we have this desire. We want to do it. Be free today, ladies, to live by grace through faith in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I love you, and I know these ladies do too, God. We thank you for your word. It is sharp. It is powerful. It is living, God. It is alive and new to us. Every single time we go to your scriptures, there is something new for us, God. And we are so grateful. God, thank you that we're not under the old covenant, that you sent your son, Jesus, Lord, to take our sins as a propitiation, Lord, upon himself, God, to atone for our sins, God, that we could know you personally, God, now that we could have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Lord. So we thank you for that. We're blessed, Lord. I pray for these ladies today. If any have been struggling, Lord, with this legalistic bent of having to do something, God, I pray you would free them today and that they'd be freed to respond to you out of sheer love and um, gratitude, Lord. 
So we love you and praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.